Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 23rd, 2022. Um, we are returning. Uh, we've, we've done a lot of uh, shows recently about migration, immigration, the nature of what it means to be a refugee. A couple of weeks ago, I had the Egyptian-American writer and business student, Andrew Leon Hanna, on the show, describing the world's refugees as 25 million sparks of innovation. It's a spirited, humanistic work, and the book he has out is entitled 25 Million Sparks, The Untold Story of Refugee Entrepreneurs. This idea of each refugee being a spark, I think, is, is, is a good way of, of thinking about the experience of being a refugee. Uh, last month, I also did a show with Levi Vonk, a man who spent some time in Central America uh, and writing about the refugee crisis there. He has a new book out called Border Hacker, which he wrote with a man called Axel Kirshner, who was, again, another perhaps spark of humanity. Um, last year, we also had the uh, American journalist Timer Cormack on the show talking about uh, a family's refugee experience. It's a, another kind of spark of humanity. His book, Beyond the Sea and Sand, One Family's Quest for a Country to Call Home. Uh, today, we're returning to this theme. Uh, and I found a, a, a man who I think perhaps captures the, the idea of a refugee and the migrant crisis as a spark of humanity. Uh, his name is uh, Osman Umar. His new book is North to Paradise. It's a memoir of his experience coming from Africa to Spain. Uh, and I'm thrilled and honored that he is joining us from uh, Barcelona today. Uh, Osman, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, uh, Hannah's book, 25 Million Sparks, The Untold Story of Refugee Entrepreneurs. You're probably not. But um, do you think of each refugee as a kind of a spark? Are there words that we should think about when we, when we in the West see, see these pictures of people being picked up at the border of drowning in the Mediterranean, uh, of being vilified by the peoples of North America or, or, or Europe. How would you like uh, us to think about refugees? First of all, thank you for this huge opportunity. And I think it's fantastic in a great moment to talk about migration and refugees. If we go back to history, let's realize that mostly, most of the people who have the interest, the will to change from their native place to a seeking for the better life are normally those who definitely are more curious and have the ability to will to, 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 to get something else up there. So then in a sense, I'm not saying that we are the most strongest or we are the most intelligent, but I think it's fundamental to acknowledge the fact that due, during the existence of humanity, 
migration has already been something fundamental and especially those who don't uh, accept to conform with realities they seek for better life to go higher and starting taking this as a reference we can understand that mostly most of the refugees seeking for better life are those who are definitely with some extra capacities to cooperate to bring some new things to our world so definitely we need to change our perspective of seeing migrants as a big problem but rather a huge opportunity well you are exhibit a in terms of um that figure who wanted a new life you write about yourself you're from uh, Fiasso in Ghana. Um, you write, uh, as a child, I had very little to enjoy, so I had to invent my own uh, toys and games. When I was thirsty, I had to go to the river to fetch water. And then as a 12-year-old, um, you began to think about the outside world. You watched television for the first time. In fact, you watched uh, Barcelona, the football team playing. Why do you think you left your village? Because as you say in the book, um, you weren't radically impoverished. You had enough to eat. There was a school. You had a family. What was it that drove you to um, to investigate, to explore the world as a 12-year-old? <laughs> okay, I had food. I had family, which was very important. But unfortunately, there wasn't school in my village. I had to walk seven kilometers to go to the nearest village. Where there was a school, it, they, it takes me 14 kilometers to go to school. So definitely yeah, and if you note in the book, when it rained, they didn't have the school. It was cancelled. <laughs> so was yes, I, have a, I had the most important, which is the, my family, food, shelter. But of course, um, I was lack of uh, information, especially education, and um, this curiosity of knowing who are these white men, what is outside there pushed me out of the village. You can still see here, for example, uh, my hand. I don't know whether you, you can realize that this is a bit more different than this one. So this is my doctorate de uh, degree, which proves that I'm a welder, electric welder at the age of nine. Yeah, years. and for people who are just listening to this, we just saw, um, uh, <laughs> we just saw uh, Usman's uh, two hands. One is darker than the other. It's a burn, explosion burn from welding as an uh, electric welder at the age of nine. This proves that uh, child labor in my part of the world is absolutely accepted and integrated in the system. So, yes, I was okay, but definitely things have nothing to compare with the life here in the Western world. So, um, the truth is that curiosity pushed me out of the village, seeking for how to understand who are these white men, why are they so capable to do all this, um, uh, airplanes, cars, and all that, and my toy car cannot even move just a single centimeter by itself. So yes, Yeah, and the, and the book is called North, North to Paradise. Of course, you use the word paradise. Um... <laughs> Uh, tongue-in-cheek, uh, it's certainly anything but paradise. Certainly the experience of getting there wasn't like going to paradise. Uh, readers Absolutely. of Lit Hub have already read some of your stuff on surviving a journey across the Sahara on 
seeing for the first time human remains on being so uh, thirsty that we had to, and I'm quoting you here, we had to drink our own uh, urine. Um, this was a, 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 a deeply traumatic experience, Usman, was it? This, this, this journey north from Ghana to Europe? Definitely. It was really terrible, harrowing experience, especially the first part of the journey, which was to cross the Sahara Desert by foot in three terrible weeks, where out of 46 people, only six of us finally made it to Libya without counting on other dead bodies in different groups. Only in my group, out of 46 people, only six survived. 40 of them died without any kind of explanations. This was only the first part. Because after when myself and the five other people who survived, we survived in, we arrived in Libya in that time, 2022. Yeah, we did a show, um, and I, again, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, with the Irish journalist, very brave and important Irish journalist, Sally Hayden, who, who is exposing the what she calls the 21st century slave trade, particularly going through Libya. I think she's right. Uh, she has a, a very important new book out called My Fourth Time We Drown, Seeking Refuge in the World's Deadliest Migration Route. It's a, it's a journalistic book that should be read, I think, in parallel with yours. Libya was pretty dire, Usman, was it? Um, I can only tell you that reality overcame fiction. I stayed in Libya for four terrible years. I lived in Sabha, Obari, Benghazi, Tobruk, Tripoli, Awinet, Sert, working as a slave. It's easy to say it. Leave it. It's another thing. I can only. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 hard for me. It's it's hard to even uh, respond to that. I mean, living as a slave in in Libya in the early part of the twenty first century was this because essentially there was no law and order in Libya that it was run by groups of militias. Is that the the real reason no, no, why no. that time no no that time Gaddafi was the leader was the dictator but the reality was that being black and alive was almost a crime every day wake up in the morning to be able to hide yourself until night without being in jail was a huge success so you finally yeah, so, so how did you get out of Libya? After working as a slave, I was so fortunate to raise 1,800 US dollars. So I finally failed for the second time in hands of human traffickers in Tripoli. They told me from Libya to paradise will take us only 45 minutes. But that has nothing to do with the reality. It took us three months to cross from uh, Libya to Algeria, uh, Tunisia, from Tunisia to Algeria, Algeria to Morocco, from Morocco to Mauritania, Mauritania to Western Sahara, before we can therefore take the boat to cross, not the Mediterranean Sea, Atlantic Ocean, because we went down to the Atlantic Ocean. 
And you were one of the lucky ones, Usman. You survived. And indeed, in some ways, in many ways, I'm prospered most, in, in Spain. <laughs> I'm one of the most fortunate men on this earth. I've been, I mean, uh, I've been capable to hide from death hundred times. Even though in the sea, I didn't know how to swim. Our first attempt, the two different boats, which was uh, where one of my best friends, Musa, jumped into the boat A, I was in the boat B. Their boat sank out of 150, 180 people. Nobody survived in that boat. Musa also died. I had to come back to the uh, uh, coast, stay, wait for the second trip again. In the second attempt, two different boats. In the middle of the boat, the other one sank again. And my boat stayed 48 hours without water, no food, only the agony kills you before you fall in the water. I didn't know how to swim. Still, I'm not a swimmer. I'm now practicing. Today, fortunately, I have, a, after this interview, I have to go to the swimming pool because I'm, still, I'm practicing because I have a lot of phobia to the water. So definitely, I'm one of the most fortunate men on this earth. I really believe that. So that's why I think that each and every one of us, we need to recognize the fortunate we are to be who we are and to be where we are. And so by a, a series of miracles, really, you end up in Spain. And then in Spain itself, you're, and, and I use this word carefully, um, uh, Osman, you're adopted by a, a Spanish family and you become part of a remarkable Spanish family, which enables you to do all the amazing things you've done since arriving in Spain. Is that fair? Exactly. I think um, there's, there should be always a, a hope in, in life. We need to always have hope because after all these terrible experiences, I end up in Barcelona State, slept on the street for, for two months whereby I eat from rubbishes because nobody looks to my eyes. I never feel so lonely. Even the dads, neither the Sahara, the Sahara Desert, I felt so lonely as my first two months in the city of Barcelona. However, there was a lot of people living in the city. Nobody looks into your eyes. Nobody uh, answered to my greetings because I was a poor person and um, a migrant. So I was like a crime. People was afraid of me. Until this woman just stood in front of me and I just told her I wanted to go to Red Cross, they end up giving me the opportunity to be a born again. And that's how um, they became my, my guardians until 18 years. But I was almost 17, so um, they were my guardians legally to until 18 years, but they are my adopted parents, even though it's not written anywhere. Osman, there, are, as you know, again, better than most, there are many Europeans, or some Europeans at least, who are very hostile to migrants. One of them is a woman called Ayan Hersi Ali. I've had her on the show. She has a new book out, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. She suggests that many of the men coming, particularly from uh, Muslim North Africa, uh, prey on women. How would you respond to this hostility, this deep-rooted hostility amongst many people in Europe to migrants like yourself? And the reality is that even though I was a kid, but however, I was a man. So if imagine how terrible I went through 
I started when I was 12 to 18 years. I ended up of 17 years in Barcelona. How, just imagine how terrible it was for me. But imagine being a woman. So I think you, we can compare surface, surface, who surface more than others. But I think the truth is that uh, for women, abusing and all that is even is very frequent. And even being a kid, I've been in situation of uh, uh, rape and all that, people trying to rape you because you are vulnerable. So I can't just imagine how terrible it's going to be for a woman. I think there are two ways of responding uh, for people who have been through what you've been through either. And, and perhaps these aren't ex mutually exclusive. On the one hand, you could fight for countries to um, institute more liberal immigration laws. On the other hand, you might address the roots of the migration crisis, which is the profound inequality, particularly between Africa and Europe. And it seems as if you're going the second way with your nonprofit, NASCO Feeding Minds. Um, you're, you're focused on feeding the minds of Africa. Is that fair in, 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 in how you're, I guess, paying back your good luck, Ursman? <laughs> exactly. After all this while, once I get, I arrived Spain, in only six years, I was capable to overcome all my education, Spanish education system and end up having a degree in the university. So I acknowledge that I was absolutely convinced, and today I'm convinced that, yes, education is the only way to solve migration. The solution, at least in my part of the world, is at source, the origin of the problem. So if definitely we want to help Africa, what we need to do, at least I repeat, the part of my world I come from, we need to stop feeding stomachs. We need to feed their mind. The solution will come in there. So I assume yeah, and, 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 and uh, on your NASCO website, uh, you, you describe it all, not you. It's described as a nonprofit NGO. Your mission is to promote access to information and training for people in Ghana, Africa, uh, by promoting digital ed education, education, by changing the paradigm of humanitarian aid. Um, in your book, you talk about having to walk several miles to an outdoor classroom sure, sure. And, and the classroom being in Ghana when you were growing up and the school being canceled if it rained. What, what do you want to replace that with? So that a 12-year-old Usman won't make the same nightmarish journey that you made. Okay, the truth is that the problem we have, we need to think globally, but we need to act locally. Of course, we can fix all the problems in the world, but at least we can fix the little proportion of the problem that belongs or that it is close to our realities. So yes, I think giving access to information, education, is giving the strong, the most powerful weapon to this youth to be capable to decide what they want to do in their future without falling in the hands of these terrifying human traffickers. If they have access to information, education, they can create these opportunities in their hometowns themselves. The real example 
is our first success story. I can show you here, and this is my second book. It's all, at the moment only in Spanish. This is our first success story. You can see here the president of Ghana, and close here is my younger brother, Banasco. When I arrived to Spain, he was in the mood to sell all his uh, his uh, resources to go to the desert, cross the Mediterranean Sea, and seek come to paradise. I told him to stay home and feed his mind. Look, 2020 election, this is the president of Ghana. The youngest parliamentary candidate was him last two years. This is the real situation. It's not about ideas. It's a reality fact. He is NASCAR has also him. been doing some interesting uh, work in the environment. Um, uh, in agri-food waste and uh, the production of fertilizer and an electricity generator. How much is the crisis of refugee in Africa, how much is it a reflection of the crisis of global warming and the environment? I think um, um, it's important to acknowledge the fact that the globe a big proportion of the world continent, a world proportion is Africa. Africa is one of the biggest continents on earth. But when it comes to global warming and all that, people just, it seems like it's about only the Western world. But I think it's fundamental to aware, to raise awareness in the African continent. And the only way to do it is by education and creating opportunities down there. So I think their contribution in taking good care of the growing of economy in Africa, the Western world have done a lot to warm the globe. But I think Africa, we can do it in a different way. That's why I think this solution cannot be done without uh, Africa in the equation. We have a big a responsibility, a big part to play in this new group, uh, global, uh, 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 let's say, no global warming, but see, in a sense, global warming, because I think big part of this warming has been caused by the Western world, but Africa might also change, grow, but in a sensible way to improve, uh, to, to, to reduce the effect of the global warming. That's why I think it's fundamental to create this new way of creating energy to facilitate In your book, Guzman, uh, North to Paradise, a memoir, which of course paradise is treated rather satirically. <laughs> In a way, perhaps paradise was Ghana itself. You return to Ghana, but it's a... Uh, and a, a curious return. Your mother at first doesn't recognize you. What was it like going back as this remarkable success? Uh, and how are you seen now in Ghana as a published author, as a well-known figure, as someone traveling around the world? Do, 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 do the kids look up to you? Do they all want to be like uh, uh, Usman Omar? Omar? <laughs> um, yes, in the first place, it was really shocking, emotionally affective. Very, it affected me a lot going back home. And my mom, definitely, she wasn't my biological mom, but she's my aunt who took care of me since I was born. And then for me, she's my mom. So going back home, even though it was a long 
sometimes a little but she, she recognizing me emotionally was a death it was a big shock this in the first place in the second place i think a lot of things have changed but there's still a lot to do i always prefer to be more positive in all my situations because i think the only way to be capable to go ahead is looking at this from the positive angle in the last part kids look at me as an example to follow or as somebody who have made life comfortable for himself because i come from europe probably most people will look at me and say yes this guy is okay etc etc but most of them also realize that yes if i was so good in europe why do i convince my brother to stay and study and lead the change in his own community so i think we always need to predict with our examples so and um, yes in one hand people look at me like okay today you are okay but will we want to suffer to lose more than 95 percent of our friends like you did to be in your position that's the question so now yeah osman um you're now you you have two families you have your african family from ghana and then you have your family from barcelona um yes. we all should have those kind of families because we all live in one world what have you learned from having these two families one based in barcelona and one in in in, in ghana how has that given you a new perspective these two families because uh you, you you'll never separate it doesn't seem as if you'll separate yourself from either you that they're, they're equally valid equally credible families and you're a you're a son and a and a brother to to all these people in the different families and they're very different families <laughs> it's one of the most richest experience one can experience that's what i repeat i'm one of the most fortunate people men on this earth i have black brothers and i have white brothers <laughs> And um, the most important thing is the capability to be tolerant in both worlds. I think in this world, we definitely need to break these walls of I am black, this is my family, and this is my, my religion and all that. Or I am white, this is my family, this is my religion, and nobody, no, anyone who is not into my family religion and all that is an enemy. I think we need to break these walls at least once. The peaceful world we admire to live can only happen if my brother is Jews, my wife's brother is German, and my uncle is a Russian. So it gets to the point that it doesn't mean sense throwing bombs to Russia because in Russia, my cousins live there. It doesn't mean sense killing Jews because my aunt is Jew or is married to a Jew. Jew. When you get to the point that we are all mixed, that's where peace will come from. 